There he goes. One of God's own prototypes. A high-powered mutant of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live, and too rare to die. Welcome to episode 68 of the Digital Freemason Podcast for the week of November 12th, 2007. I'm your host, Scott, and I'll be taking you along on another excellent adventure through the world of short Masonic educational papers. All these papers and others are available on my website, www.thedigitalfreemason.com. So I encourage you to swing by and check that out. So this week's episode comes from Wallace McLeod, who is a professor at Classics at Victoria College at the University of Toronto. And he, the reason I like this one is there's so much, uh, I guess, with history having come from uh, Freemasonry from England and uh, the prevalence of Freemasonry in the United States, seems to be really a lot of information polarized into those two and uh, quintessential Canadians. It's a little bit tougher to find pieces that uh, talk about Freemasonry that are pertinent to, uh, to Canada. So this one actually delves a little bit into uh, Freemasonry and a little bit of its involvement in the evolution of, of democracy and the, uh, the growth of Canada as a, as a British colony and as a country. So let's just dig right into um, very worshipful, well, I guess it would be right worshipful uh, McLeod's piece on Freemasonry, the evolution of democracy in Canada. There's a vast field of research called constitutional history, which, among other things, lets us trace the steps leading to democracy in the English-speaking world. These include such items as the Great Charter, which asserted the supremacy of the law, even, even over this chief estate, the Petition of Rights, which prohibited taxation without Parliament's consent, the Habeas Corpus Act, which prevented imprisonment without due cause, the Declaration of the Liberty of Consciousness, which gave freedom to all religious denominations, and the Bill of Rights, which made it illegal to make or suspend any law without the consent of Parliament. These all antedate the formation of modern Freemasonry, but, in one form or another, they were all brought to North America by by British settlers, even though the power of such laws may have been diluted by the fact that the people were no longer in their homeland. It is possible that Freemasons may have had some effect on the growth of democracy, In the first book of Constitutions of the Freemasons, published in 1723, James Anderson gives the charges of a Freemason, extracted from the ancient records of the lodges. And then we read that all Masons are brethren upon the same level. This has something to be interpreted as expressing the idea that all men are created equal. A few pages later, Anderson also quotes the general regulations as Grand Lodge approved them in 1721. One rule runs as follows. All matters are to be determined in the Grand Lodge by a majority of votes, each member having one vote and the Grand Master having two votes. This regulation explicitly specifies equal votes for all members, except for the presiding officer, and to the extent it embodies the principle of equality. And being promulgated in the Freemasons' Law, Code of 19, or 1721, it has long antedated any notion of universal suffrage in the politics of the profane world. One might well imagine that, over the course of time, there, those who have belonged to Masonic organizations 
with rules like this would assimilate or perhaps generalize such an ideal. This might affect their attitudes to authoritarian actions on the part of the government. But we know that, from time to time, particularly in the colonies, the British Parliament seemed to have imposed certain measures that were not supported by the people. In the circumstances, it might be tempting to conclude that Freemasons would be leaders in the struggle for democracy. In fact, we have seen their role in the Constitutional Conference that was held in Philadelphia in 1787. But further north in Canada, over the course of time, they were also associated with similar changes, even though there was never any such Constitutional Conference. On March 1738, Major James Phillips was warranted from Boston as the first provincial Grand Master of Nova Scotia. He was the nephew of the governor of the colony, Colonel Richard Phillips. The first lodge in what is now Canada was instituted in Annapolis Royal in Nova Scotia in June of 1738 under the authority of the provincial Grand Master. Quebec became British with the Battle of the Plains of the Abraham in September of 1759 when an army under the command of General Wolfe Wolf, defeated the French. And, as W.R. Deslow notes, it is claimed that Wolfe was a member of the Midden Military Lodge. A scant ten weeks after the battle, on November, in November, six military lodges in Wolfe's army formed the Provincial Grand Lodge of Quebec. It eventually began to institute civilian lodges in the area under its jurisdiction. This provincial Grand Lodge and its successors were the chief agents that helped masonry expand to the West. Of course, in the American War of Independence there were masons on both sides. The earliest Masonic record in what is now Ontario is a certificate dated 1780 in February of Henry Nels, a New Yorker, who was initiated in the Lodge in the 8th or King's Own Regiment of Foot, number 5 on the Provincial Register of Quebec. After the Revolution, many of those on the losing side migrated north to Canada. More than 30,000 moved to the Atlantic colonies. 2,000 settled in Quebec. 7,500 came into what is now Ontario. These Loyalists included many Freemasons who had fought on the British side. Thomas Merritt, in the Queen's Rangers and eventually Sheriff of Lincoln County, was the first master of St. George's Lodge in St. Catharines in 1816. Colonel John Butler, who organized Butler's Rangers during the Revolution, was Provincial Grand Senior Warden, Senior Warden in 1795. Major James Rogers of Rogers Rangers is on record as Master of St. James's No. 14 in 1781. Major Edward Jessup, Commander of the Loyal Rangers, or Jessup's Corps, was the first Senior Warden of Lodge 13 near Brockville in 1799. Major Peter Van Alston of Cooler's uh, Corps led the refugees who settled in Adolfston in 1784, and he was Master of St. James No. 7 in Fredericksburg in 1797. Stephen Jarvis, a loyalist from Connecticut who eventually became Gentleman Usher of the Black Rod in the Legislative Assembly of Upper Canada, was a charter member in St. Andrews No. 1 in Toronto back in 1822. Colonel Joseph Ryerson, who fought in the Prince of Wales Regiment, was master of the number of Lodge Number no. 122 in Charlotteville, which was organized in 1803. And all, these are but a sample 
About each of them, there is a lot more that can obviously be said. People such as these have played a pivotal role in the continued evolution of democracy. Canada still honors a group of men known as the Fathers of Confederation. They met several times in 1864 and carried out negotiations that eventually led to the British North America Act. By its terms, the Dominion of Canada came into existence on July 1, 1867, as a self-governing country in the British Commonwealth of Nations. Strange to relate, its constitution still remained in Britain until 1982, even though the British government had not permit, was not permitted to amend it. Only two of the founding fathers of Confederation so far have been identified as Freemasons, Sir John A. Macdonald, the first Prime Minister of Canada, and Sir, Sir Alexander Campbell, the Commissioner of Crown Lands, who eventually became the Lieutenant Governor of Ontario. By curious coincidence, both of them had been initiated in St. John's, St. John's Lodge No. 5 in Kingston in the same year of 1844. The man responsible for this, sometimes called the Last Father of Confederation, he was Joseph Smallwood, a member of Northcliffe Lodge No. 1086 under the Scottish Constitution in Grand Falls, Newfoundland. In 1870, during Brother Macdonald's leadership, the Great Northwest became a part of Canada. In order to preserve order, a military force was sent from Ontario to Winnipeg, and in November of 1870, none of these soldiers received a dispensation to form the oldest surviving lodge in Manitoba. As settlement progressed westward across the prairies, Freemasonry reached Saskatchewan in 1879 and Alberta in 1882. In February of 1965, after a prolonged debate, a distinctive Canadian flag with a maple leaf was adopted to take the place of the so-called Red Ensign. The prime mover in this discussion was Honorable John Ross Matheson, who had been initiated in Queen's Lodge No. 578 in Kingston in the, back in 1940. From its very inception, modern Freemasonry has fostered an atmosphere of freedom and equality. In short, we find, as we have found elsewhere, that even though the history of the evolution of democracy is quite different in Canada, Freemasons did play a substantial role in that evolution. So that wasn't quite what I had anticipated when it came to uh, Freemasonry's impact on uh, the evolution of a democracy within Canada. Still, it uh, gives a sort of fairly good rattling down of some of the people. I would like to have seen a little bit more of the events, but you know what that does? That gives me a little bit of an idea. It's something that I can uh, further strive to understand, find out, and root through. So that's this week's episode of the Digital Freemason. Yeah, I've been your host, Scott, and I've enjoyed our time together. And I'd hope that... Um, you can swing by our uh, website at uh, com and uh, leave a message, or if you have any uh, comments or anything like that, by all means do that. The thing I'd be looking for is uh, starting to get a little bit low on what I'll call good quality um, material for, uh, for future podcasts. So if you have anything like that, by all means, email those or any comments to me at the digital freemason.com i guess the actual email address is podcast at the digital freemason.com so until next week be sure to keep the shiny side up